Right, hello everyone. Welcome to BizPod, Behaviour Intervention Support Network podcast. And I'm delighted to have not one, not two, but three fantastic guests with me today. Uh, I have Harry Thompson, who has been on the podcast before, uh, who I'm always probably taking advantage of and getting him to do more than I should. But he's always willing, so there you go. Uh, and <laughs> you, you were, oh, he's making a face at me already, which you, you won't be able to see on the audio recording. Uh, did you, that you, sound you inappropriate? Just, no, you just exploit away, Amish boy. <laughs> I'm gonna look. I'm, it's a shame they can't see because they're missing out on my blue and black underwear, and they're missing out on your um, remarkable face fuzz. It's not that. Is it Amish? I thought Amish wouldn't have the tash. So. Anyway, this isn't, we're not going to just talk about my beard and your pants uh, yeah, for the whole... That, that only took us 30 seconds, I swear. Good, good, good. And Chloe Farahar? Yes. I'm, I, you've been explaining to me how to pronounce your name, which is not a good start for a host, but I think I've got it right there. It's, it's Irish. Well, well it's, it's got Celtic origins. So for some reason, I think people think it's like Middle Eastern or something, but it's not. I did. Okay. Yeah. I think it's just too many A's for me, so I end up putting extra <laughs> ahas in there. Which maybe I should put like a hyphen, so it's literally Farah Ha, and then everyone will be right. I don't think you should make exceptions just because I can't get it right. I think probably most people probably can. Um, and Molly Sherwin, hello, hello. Molly. Hi. Um, and we are all going to be doing a webinar together in December, so I thought I would try and get you guys on the podcast and have a chat about what kind of things you do in general. Um, I know Harry and Chloe uh, run the Academy. Uh, is it a Facebook page or is it a website or it's just a Facebook page? Is that right? It's, it's, it's a phenomenon. It's a phenomenon. <laughs> I've, I've done it a disservice then. <laughs> well, well, it's because there's all the things. There's, there's different platforms. So, yeah. Hmm. Largely um, we're on Facebook. Okay, so I'd love to talk to you guys more about that as well. Um, and Molly, you have have you done presentations on the Academy Phenomenon page? Not that I'm aware of, though I could be mistaken. <laughs> I honestly don't know. Harry, have I? Molly uh, featured as a guest when we were talking about autistic artists. Uh -huh. uh... Uh, yeah. So, Remember would that. that be a good way to introduce you then, Molly, as an autistic artist? Probably. Only thing I do. <laughs> Literally. You say only thing you do. You're like <clears throat> definitely a multidisciplinary artist because you have so many different mediums that you literally ran upstairs while knitting to get to this podcast. I was like, okay, I've got to finish the show, but I've got to get to the podcast. I need to be quick. I'll run with it. <laughs> Um, one thing I, I did want to perhaps take the opportunity to talk to you all about at the moment, because um, as someone who works with autistic people, but is not autistic and doesn't have that experience of being autistic, uh, I'm always trying to make sure that I'm up to speed and on point with terminology. Uh, I, I think terminology is really important. The analogy I always use, which may have said before on the podcast is uh you know shakespeare once said would a rose by any other name smell as sweet but if you called it a stinking ass you wouldn't sniff it in the first place so the way that you talk about something uh i think represents how you behave towards it um and 
I guess at the moment, uh, the, the terminology I'm using a lot is neurodiversity. Um, and the other day I was struggling a little bit on a Facebook Live because I kept catching myself saying neurodiverse conditions, neurodiverse disorders. And Chloe, help, Chloe, <laughs> yeah. please help okay. me. This Educate. is my, this is, out. yeah, so. Um, this is Chloe's bread and butter. Yeah, my, my. <laughs> Prepare um, to be spread. I'm in, I'm in. <laughs> my PhD was in the reduction of mental health stigma by looking at the language that we use and um, reframing it within the language of neurodiversity. So what I love about the neurodiversity paradigm oh, it's very educational at 12 o'clock on a Tuesday, um, <laughs> is that it's really developed in terms of terminology. So when I first dis sort of came across it, literally all I knew was the word neurodiversity and neurodiverse. There wasn't really much other language. Um, so when I first came across it, I created a play called Stigmaphrenia, and that was the only language that I could use in that to address the stigma. And then I had to update it as I went along. So then it was... Um, understanding how nuanced the, the narrative of neurodiversity is. So I, as an autistic person, am neurodivergent. Um, divergent only in terms of societal ideas of normality. So there's no absolute um, in terms of divergence. So there's, and there's no negative connotation placed on being divergent. Um, so yeah, I'm neurodivergent, but only in relation to so-called neurotypicality. So non autistic, non-people um, with attention differences, sort of the, the idea of normal in quotation marks, um, so neurotypical. Um, and yeah, and then you can keep going. So there's neuro-minorities. So as an autistic person, I'm part of a neuro-minority. Um, you can be multiply neurodivergent. So you could be autistic and have attention differences and OCD and a number of other things. So there's a lot of language around the... Um, paradigm um i guess the the easiest thing just to help remind you in terms of the correct language is that an individual cannot be diverse because you only have one brain and um, diverse applies to more than one so like two or more things or people or something like that so we can talk about the neurodiversity of a population and humanity but we can only talk about neurodivergent or neurotypical individuals. Does that make sense? Yes, although it's, I've been getting it very wrong then. So it makes sense. And that's absolutely fine. I'm very used to that. Um, you know, people, and again, it's if you've come to the um, sort of the neurodiversity narrative um, and you don't really immerse yourself in the communities or anything like that. And, uh, you know, if you're not autistic yourself, it's, it's not that easy, I guess, to um, not, not pick up the language, but why would you? And, and there's, to some extent, there's some, um, largely it's interesting. It's kind of like businesses and organizations that jump on the neurodiversity bandwagon, as it were, um, and they just have a very basic understanding. We kind of call it neurodiversity light. So an under, but very simplistic understanding of neurodiversity. Um, I'm going to stop rambling, but I just wanted to pick up on what you said about the Shakespeare thing. I actually have a blog that I'm writing for, um, or an article, blog article, that I'm writing for another university. Mm -hmm. And I've titled it, um, let me find it, because uh, where is it? 
um, a rose by any other name would smell of stigma. So if you describe um, autistic people in a certain way, so if you call us person with autism, um, so some people will argue either that person with autism is preferable than autistic person without actually finding out what the autistic person prefers mm. um, or the community prefers. Um, or they'll say, well, they're basically the same thing. And it's like, well, actually they're not. Like you say, it's a rose by any name, other name would smell of stigma. So why it's more important. And then I've got like a little um, subtitle, which is all the psychologically important difference between being a person with autism and an autistic person. So I just thought that was funny that you brought that up. Mm. I will stop waffling. <laughs> there is nothing, there is nothing more pleasing to the heart than witnessing an autistic person uh, talking about their special interests. You know, it's it's um, it's a uh, a kind of satisfying waffling, it really is. Hundred you know. percent. Hundred percent. Would you? Is that what? Um, so, what would all of your special interests include then, Chloe? I, I'm I'm assuming yours is is neurodiverse neurodivergence. Yeah, it's very very narrow. Um, so I'm one of so so. Diff, what's interesting is that particularly late diagnosed um, autistics will say I don't have a special interest or something like that and they don't necessarily realize that they've maybe got multiple or had multiple um, fixations on particularly things that interest them and when I was because um, I was late diagnosed I was diagnosed at 32 and I'm 36 now um, one of the things that I said you're was, 36 yes it's, it's hard to believe, isn't it? There's a discussion on our EDS video, shameless plug, um, Ellis Danlos um, video that we did on Academy, where we actually discuss um, there's, a, there's a commonality among most autistic people, not all, that we look a lot younger than we actually are chronologically. Um, and arguably that's because of the differences in collagen, which relates to high rates of um, hypermobility and Ellis Danlos syndrome. So images. basically you're telling me I'm still going to be beautiful at 40. Yes. Mm, okay. <laughs> so you I thought you were in like your 20s. Yeah, I get that. Yeah. Sometimes it's nice and then sometimes it's um it makes it's it's frustrating because I think I've said this before when I finished my PhD viva we went for dinner and one of my peers was reminding themselves themselves how old I was because they were about my age or a little bit younger or actually quite a little bit younger than me and they were always shocked at how old I was and then my viva examiners went well, how old we thought you were much younger we would have gone much harder on you if we'd realized how much older the, you were and I was kind of like I really hope you're joking <laughs> but it's hard to know <laughs> kind of thing um but no but but in terms of special interests um I didn't think I had any and then my friend at the time was like of course you do it's psychology and mental health that's literally all you're interested in and I didn't think of it that way because I was doing it for an undergrad and a master's and things like that I didn't think of it as a special interest I just thought of it as my academic interests but yeah so my interests are mental health stigma reduction um and neurodivergence in all its forms hmm. um my special interests are wheelbarrows, pants, and cottage pie. Wow, so, what, so would you be most happy with a wheelbarrow full of cottage pie? 
<laughs> I think I'd be happier with um, an enormous cottage pie stuffed with wheelbarrows and I dance around it in my pants. <laughs> <laughs> you get the pants in there somewhere. Yeah, pants. <laughs> you know, why fronts as opposed to boxes, I think. Oh, really? Really? <laughs> yeah, because I know... Well, if we really want to go into this... <laughs> why not? Obviously we do. <laughs> Let's really so go. You either, get, you either get trunks or patterns. I mean, I don't, I don't I've not worn Y-Fram since I was quite small, but I prefer those kinds of trunk, those leg trunks instead of boxes, because otherwise it gets all bunchy mm. under your jeans. Yeah, you know, and no. it's a sensory nightmare. So I'm making pants relevant to autistic experience right now. Go me. I'm not sure how I, how I can do the same with wheelbarrows. <laughs> <laughs> It'd be quite stimmy. If one of you were to kindly just wheel me around the block every now and again. I think oh, I'd I was about to say, I'll be in the wheelbarrow. Yeah. Okay. We have wheelbarrow I, could push, I could push someone. We could really and autify then... it. We could, elect, we could, we could make it um, like an electric wheelbarrow and we could race each other. Oh. Whilst eating cottage pie. You know, when this um, when this webinar eventually, you know, goes global, that can be a midpoint activity. <laughs> Wheeling around in a wheelbarrow. <laughs> yeah. Okay. We, we, yeah, well, social... I mean, the, the lockdown will be finished by then, so if we can all meet up somewhere with wheelbarrows and cottage pies and just have a big... I don't the know problem what is I'm describe that as, but... Yeah. I'm vegan. I, I don't know if I mentioned that. I'm vegan. You know, just, just letting everyone know that I am a vegan. This is me. <laughs> I'm a vegan. Vegan. Um, so I can't have cottage pie. I did say it would have to be vegan cottage pie. Oh, I was sorry. I was so uh, fixated on pants. I, <laughs> I just don't <laughs> like cottage pie. I yeah, just don't no. think it's nice at all. I'm not a massive fan. Shepherds, I don't mind too much, but there you go. Okay. okay, Molly, your interests is it is it all around art? Do you, do you, you know you're an now the whole yeah. list or the short list? I keep I mind mean, the short list still isn't short. Well, we just did about ten minutes on pants and cottage pie, so I think we can you know we can go long. We can. Uh -huh. What's the long list? The long list. Okay. Oh. Um, oh God. Okay. Okay. Let me just try and think of them all. Okay. I, I think I've got most of them. Okay. Photography, knitting, crocheting, sculpting, painting, watercolors, drawing, gaming, um, pop culture. There is history I'm quite interested in. There is also um, sewing, uh, making clothes, doll customization. Um, I love looking music as well. I get very into that. And I think that's the ones from the top of my head. It's a pretty good extensive list. I have no social life. I have to make up my time with a bunch of different stuff I can do. <laughs> I think the I think the main one, like even though I do art in knitting stuff more, I think the one that I get proper into the most is gaming though because such an extensive field of beauty. Mm. It's just... That, that was beautifully put. And it's a very important point because 
in my experience in working with uh, autistic and PDA families, video games are by far the most common complaint I hear from parents. And I'm always in a position to say, they're not problems, they're solutions. But the thing is, I am not a gamer and I stopped gaming as it were okay. prior to the inception of gaming culture. Okay. Um, and I also, when I play with people, I'm such a troll. I would much rather destroy everyone else's fun than join in with their fun. So I'm not a good team player. So it's always useful to have Molly's insight because Molly, as you uh, heard, is passionate about this. And I think First off, school failed me. I didn't know how to read. I didn't know how to write because school failed me. School um, is for children. <laughs> and then uh, let's just say I learned how to read and write the way I do now by typing commands in on a game. I learned about ph philosophy and how the things you do can have a cause and effect from choice-based games. I've learned so much from games and they don't always have to be a negative experience. Like people, kids getting upset and throwing their controls at games, they're most likely playing a multiplayer game because it's unpredictable and you just naturally gain stress with the social aspect of it. But so I can understand parents being concerned over that. Plus, you don't know what who your kids are talking to on multiplayer games or anything like that. But games in general, that's just bullshit. I mean, Jesus fucking Christ, that's just bullshit. I mean, like, they'd have, like, people who say games are mind numbing and shit like that, they've never played a fucking game. I mean, you're sitting here and you're watching, like, your kid play Fortnite or some shit and you don't realise he's not getting mad at the game. He's getting mad at the people on the game. It's not the game's fault. It's the people that are playing the game. Like, there's some... Most games that have been made are beautiful, calming, and just take you into another world. These games that you see parents bashing, they're mainstream games that have just been pushed out to make money. But actual games made by people who have a, such a passion for it, that comes through and it allows you to... Because when I was suffering with depression a lot, I'd play video games. And the reason for that is you could be a fairy. You could be this lovely old man with his wife like you could be anything you wanted and escape into a different world and experience other people's lives which gave me a lot more of an empathetic understanding of what other people may go through because it's just video games aren't just shoot and kill i mean there's a game called the last day of june and it's about this old man going through the loss of losing his wife and through his grief, he tries to change the events. But in doing so, other people get hurt. And his wife comes to him and says, it's okay. It's about accepting the loss of someone. And most games are like that. They have a message to portray, but parents can only see the shoot and kill aspect of it. I mean, even The Last of Us, which is a zombie game where you shoot and kill, that is about a father that lost his daughter and him trying to reconnect, you know, reconnect with the world. Like, because they don't play games, all they can see is the gameplay and not the story to it, which is so frustrating. Because it's like, 
say someone's playing last one said were you playing this crap you're just shooting zombies it's um portraying violence and stuff and you're just seeing it like no it's portraying a father that lost his daughter and trying to reconnect there's a complete disconnect between what you see and what someone sees when they're playing it and that's what's so frustrating to me i was gonna say i have oh sorry go on harry i was just gonna I mean, how, how has no one employed you as a salesperson for <laughs> computer games and gaming because that was <laughs> I'm, i don't even have a gaming console and I've got it on the Christmas list now. I just thought to myself, I have been wasting my life. <laughs> you know, well, like, this is the answer. This is what it's all about. Like, I will make my chief a chattering because of how passionate and angry yeah, and frustrated I'm going over this. No. Like, I'm shaking a bit psychotically. But that's what I mean. We've had an example of that. When Chloe was talking about um, neurodiversity and neurodivergence earlier, Molly was talking about the importance of gaming then. When I was talking about pants earlier, you would have noticed <laughs> similarly... Uh, passionate and enthusiastic themes to our monologues I, and, sorry, oh, you, no sorry, you're gonna say something well i was just gonna say i'm so i'm not um a, a, a gamer i don't class myself as a gamer but I, I on occasion do play games but i have a very very nuanced um need in terms of what i play she so has my, good taste in games they're really interesting so my partner louis he's autistic and has attention differences so gaming is huge for him um he's he's always gaming either on his phone or on his pc and he so that would class him as a proper gamer in quotation marks because he pc games yeah you can't say phone games you, yeah that's just not in the that's not in the gaming community if you say yeah, you're gaming like because saying, you play phone games that's saying like phone, saying saying phone games is the video game equivalent of saying neurodiverse person <laughs> <laughs> and so he a lot of his games again it's playing with other people it's a lot of sort of um so yeah rpgs shoot ups you know all this kind of thing which is not what i need not what i want um from a game because it just causes anxiety and stress for me and that's not what i want so the games that i've liked um and I actually managed to finish one game recently as an adult, which I've not been able to do since I had the Sega Meg Drive um, when I was like 15, um, was called Gris or Gree. Um, oh, that's a lovely game. Yeah. Yeah, and I know that game. Yeah. And so, well, if it, then that game, I think, um, kind of explains what I need from a game. So you can't die. You can't get injured. So, you know. I realised how much anxiety I had from playing games as a child because when the character dropped from a really high height, I tensed. And that's not a nice feeling. I don't want to have that feeling while I'm gaming, but she doesn't get hurt when she, she she's always fine, right? Um, but the game itself is about emotions. So it's about her finding her voice. It's about, um, uh, but not in a, it's not in a macabre way. It's really beautiful. And it's about journey. I don't like collecting things. I like platform games, which this is, and I like puzzles that are not too hard and also not ridiculously easy that it's boring. Um, and it was beautiful. The music was amazing. And I that was one of the most mindful things I've done. My mind is always busy, never shuts up. But that game held my attention and completely calmed my mind. So I'm always trying to find games along that line. The other game I really loved, although it, it was on a phone, but it's beautiful, is Samorost 3, which Molly probably knows. Samorost 3? It's a mobile game. Don't get me started. Okay. But, it, but I love I'm it, a purist. Though. Okay. But I, you might be able to play it on the PC. I don't know. I'm Obviously, not going to mention Snake then, because that, you 
snake no so samaros again you can't get hurt or anything like that but the, it's beautiful you're this adorable little um character called gnome the puzzles are really great um the the, the creatures and the characters and things like that so again my my need of a game means that the majority i would say like 95 percent of games do not i wouldn't play because they're all you know louis was showing me he's got 137 games on his um steam account and he was going through them and i was like they're all the same like i that none of that interests me like i say it was either zombies or shoot em ups or that kind of thing or yeah so yeah games is nice if it's chloe you've yeah. just reinforced two really big points of what i was saying one gris for example perfect game to bring up literally the world is black and white and then you slowly put color back into it the game is about depression and farting it and when you're depressed you can't really see color in the world and that's that game there's no fighting or anything and it's an emotional journey and then there's the other thing that you said where you said 95 percent of games i wouldn't play and that's because you've only seen one specific person's library but if you look at games five percent of games you wouldn't play and 95 percent of games you would play it's because the main stream games are always being shown in your face they're all shoot em ups so it leads you to believe that most games are like that when really they're actually the minority it's just that they're the most popular i tend to go through the switch um because I've got a Switch, so I go through the Nintendo library and just skim through and just look and, yeah, I'm like, no, wouldn't play that, wouldn't play that, wouldn't play that. Um, but a small number of things I would, yeah. Just just a thought, I think, because, um, it again, I, I work with a lot of families and parents and we have this conversation an awful lot and I've learned a lot from talking with Harry about, you know, computer games and, you know, hearing you talk about how useful they could be, Chloe and Molly, that, you know, it's, it's such a such an important message for for parents to hear i think and professionals oh yeah um, and i just wondered maybe there's something in that where you guys could put together almost like a an information pack or resource pack for parents that explained all these different games that they've likely never bloody heard of um and, and the value of them because actually you know if you've got uh an autistic child or young person who is that's their interest is, is playing computer games, but you can gently steer them towards these games that, you know, likely are going to add so much value to their life. Um, I think that would be something that, that people would actually be, be quite willing to get on board with. Cause like you say, a lot, a lot of the parents I talk to, they just don't understand what it is. They haven't gamed themselves. And when they have, they've, read all these articles about grand theft grand theft grand theft auto it's a bit <laughs> grand theft auto um grand theft auto and, and they think their kid's going to start robbing cars and, and shoot people in the street um, that's the thing that's so frustrating to me like when they say this movie caused someone to shoot someone or this video game did that and i'm saying here and i'm like if someone is so mentally unstable and has reached that point that a movie or video game is going to set them off then a bloody song could have set them off anything could have set them off it's not the movie's fault it's the fact that they were at that place that something set them off and as a psychologist i want to make clear the research demonstrates that games on on the whole obviously or or anything movies that kind of thing do not cause people to do those sorts of acts there's going to be multiple factors that will play into that um and and there's an argument that um in terms of correlation is it that 
sort of potentially violent or angry or aggressive people are drawn to those kinds of games and things, not necessarily that the game itself has impacted them to become violent and or aggressive. Um, because otherwise you would literally have, you know, so many gamers going out doing all these atrocious things and yeah. that doesn't happen. So it's it's not, it's never as simple as that. So I guess one of the reasons that we were sort of thinking about doing this was to sort of half promote the webinar we've got in December, which is entitled Fuckbox, uh, the importance of neurodiversity in our culture. Do I need to rename that? Is that You really need to pronounce the T more. Because to me, that just said fuck box. Fuck box. Yeah, okay. so probably pronunciate the the more. Because that yeah. could go a very different way. I don't know. I mean, does it make much difference if you fuck the box or fuck box? Fuck box just sounds like a bunch of people going in a box to do things. <laughs> so no, fuck like, the box. I think like the is very, very box. necessary. Okay, well, either way. Um, so uh, I guess... and. You know, for me, one of the things I, I want to get across to anyone that follows BizNet um, really is is the importance of learning from autistic experience. Uh, in in my sort of professional career, obviously, I've been on lots of courses, read lots of books, all that kind of stuff. But it it always it always struck me that I learned the most from my experiences working with people, um, and I guess. I guess one question I, I had for all of you was about myths or misnomers or misconceptions about autistic people. Um, and one thing that, you know, you mentioned, Molly, you mentioned, you know, I, I, I don't have a social life. Is that is that something that... Because I, I guess as a neurotypical person, we put a lot of emphasis on friendships and socialisation. Um, and when I started going on courses, admittedly not great courses about autism, um, they would kind of say, oh, people with autism prefer their own company or don't like interactions or social interactions. Is it as simple as that or is it just a difference um, of social interaction? Yes. So this would be what's known as the double empathy problem by um, the amazing Damien Milton. Can I explain this one? Because I haven't spoken in so long. Okay. And I feel like <laughs> I'm, so... got... I'm sorry, Harry, are we neglecting you? Well, I was um, tying myself up in knots when I was trying to work out how to upgrade the Zoom account. So first and foremost, it is a myth that we are all computer wizards. Oh, fuck that. Oh, yeah, yeah. To be fair, though, I tracked down someone's IP address yesterday, so... Just saying, I'm really proud of that. That's pretty, that's good um, detective work slash potential. It was all legal. like behavior. It was, it was all legal. Yeah, okay. That's virtuous, legal, totally justified stalking. Nice. It was. Um, yeah, so, right. The double empathy problem is crucial in many different ways. One, because it is an example of autistic research carried out by an autistic person. Um, who else uh, better to explain the uh, uh, complex and intricate phenomena that is our brain than a person with a brain full of intricate and complex phenomena? And I'm 
going off on a tangent. So that's good in that. It's good in that regard. Um, so the, um, the double empathy problem describes how a communication is a two way street um, and where the autistic person is often accused of not being able to comprehend the mind of the neurotypical. We find that it actually uh, the same applies the other way around. Uh, this was theorized by Dr. Damien Milton, um, autistic academic. So yeah, this is really important. It's something that I'm always trying to uh, incorporate within my explanations because I work with a lot of parents who will often um, not necessarily accuse, but they might, because of uh, their limitation in understanding of the PDA mind during a meltdown, they may often say things like, oh, all I did was this, and this seemed to trigger an enormous response. And I say, oh yeah, but you have to understand that from their perspective, that trigger isn't minor, it's major, you know? So, and also perfect examples of how NTs lack theory of mind, uh, which is a, you know, a defunct, irrelevant um, theory uh, within autistic literature or autism literature, I should say, is, you know, if parents have direct experience of this when they go to GPs who aren't willing to look further into a problem or the teachers who can't seem to comprehend why the child is behaving in such a way and isn't um, conforming and isn't being respectful. So we see examples of the double empathy problem all the time when we're faced with an insufferable ignoramus. You're looking right at me when you said that, Harry, although it is a Zoom meeting. I was actually looking at myself. Oh, okay. Well, see, there was. So my I don't know what empathy. I don't know what that was. You know, <laughs> there's a there's a kind of self empathy problem that we are yet to fathom and plumb. Can you really explain that we aren't necessarily all wanting to just be isolated and socially withdrawn? Oh, did I say that? I'm just asking because that was one of the main questions. I think. I love it because we go off on tangents and you're just like explaining all the really important bits of double empathy problem. And it's like the myth. Oh, yeah, so it's isolate. Some of us don't like, so th there's a thing, there's two types of solitary autistic people. Uh, one, or, or there's many, but let's use two examples here. So one, uh, avoids human contact because humans suck. And the other one avoids human contact probably because of horrible experiences. Mm. Um, and they may be solitary and they may, so they're, they're both are solitary. One may crave human contact, the other one might not. And it's very important that a parent especially questions this prior to trying to encourage them to make friends. You know, maybe they don't want friends. You know, I barely want to be friends with the friends I've got. I'm joking, <laughs> Molly, Chloe, I love you both. And I would say there's, there's definitely a third, if not many more, <clears throat> who are like me, for instance, who do want friends, but it's better when they're autistic. So yeah, cause you've got the issue of like you say, just not liking human beings or struggling to be around other human beings. Oh yeah, so I mean um, very, a very specific type of human being that happens to comprise of, you know, probably over 75% of the population. That are neurotypical, yeah. yeah. And that's back to that double empathy problem, which is not that we don't want to um, socially interact with other people. It's that it's just not reciprocal. It's not enjoyable. It's not easy. It doesn't fulfill you because you're trying to interact with somebody who ultimately experiences the world in a very different way to you. So you can't really connect with that 
person or that group of people as easily and they don't necessarily make the effort to understand you when you're different um so I've definitely all my friends now I say that like I've got tons of friends I mean like I've got like three friends um but that's enough for me that's loads you know it makes me feel so special yeah because I don't have but to me chosen by Dr Potato but to me that's a lot of friends if you see what I mean and they're whoa man they're all neurodivergent they're all neurodivergent. This is a throng. <laughs> Not a thong. And then it's because we can connect with one another on similar interests. So Harry and I literally just talk about autism things or just silliness, because obviously randomness is, is Harry's go-to, I think, in, in life. And so we connect on those things. Um, I'm my other, like my best friend, Annette Foster. All we talk about, again, <laughs> is autistic experiences and things like that so it never gets boring that's the thing it's yeah just it's just like wow there's always new things to discover and it's nice going over the things that we know you know like talking about the double empathy problem that's like wow I've explained it so many times it's almost quite scripted but it's like oh wow but it's so cool every single time you know it's just familiar. And, and- like seeing a friend you know the interest is there in your head like hello and the thing is I'm very very I'm not uncomfortable when I'm literally talking to Harry or Annette for several maybe hours about autism or whatever it is you know specific to autism that we're talking about but if I'm trying to have a conversation with a non-autistic person I'm very self-conscious I'm very aware that they're looking bored that I have to try and think about the sorts of things they want to talk about like the weather like the weather yes I know that's our go-to but that is what that's their special interest the way I see it um when an autistic person has a conversation, it's like we're goldfish um, that are attached to anvils. You know, it just takes us straight down into the, the depths. When neurotypical people have conversations, it, it's quite like when ADHD people have conversations, although ADHD people are like bounding dolphins, right? Just skimming from one you know, subject to another, whereas neurotypical people are like stone skimming, just lightly grazes you know, the surface. And that's the thing I, I notice in conversations myself, I will try and speak about a special interest and they can sustain it for just a few moments and then they'll default back to the weather. So this is an example of double empathy and um, the, uh, the incongruity between, between minds. And I think it is interesting when, because Harry makes the point that you could have neurotypical people talking about the weather and autistic people talking about the weather, and they're two very completely different conversations and purposes and motivations. So non-autistic people will be talking about the weather as, how do you describe it as a... Oh, so the way I did, oh no, I'm not going to do accents today. Um... (laughs) Because that would be confusing. That'd be like, who's who's here Please do, because it started off, I, I, I was really intrigued by what accent that was going to be i'll do nothing you want me to do mr harris <laughs> oh, well, don't do any bloody accents then i i demand nice don't try reverse psychology <laughs> isn't going to work for you today no right where was i so right so this is my take on it the neurotypical values the conversation for the sake of the conversation whereas the autistic person regards the conversation as a byproduct of establishing interest and the thing is, I mentioned in a um, I, to I mentioned to a, a potato recently that autistic people are not self-centered. We're interest-centered. You know, it's very, very key. And I wrote about that on my page, 
and I had some autistic people coming to me saying, oh my gosh, I literally thought I was a narcissist. I literally thought I was just um, totally selfish, you know, but it's important to recognize the difference between egocentricity and interest centricity because very often the autistic person they're not focusing on themselves they're focusing on the object of interest and it's that immediately um does wonders for an autistic person's self-image because they're probably they've probably been in receipt of those kinds of slurs and insults like, oh god it's always about you you know and it's like ah no and, and then that would help a non-autistic person have an interaction with an autistic person because they'll understand that, okay, the person isn't actually talking about themselves. They might be dominating the conversation, but that's just out of excitement of getting to talk about something that they're so, so fascinated with. And like I say, I really curb that enthusiasm when I'm with non-autistic people because I've been you know, you can tell that somebody's not interested in what you're saying or that they're just being polite or just they'll flatly refuse. I'm not interested in this. Like, you know, why you, you keep going on about this and things like that. And then it really knocks you because you're like, but this is how I communicate. I communicate not based on a social need to just communicate. I communicate to share a love of something um and so how yeah so harry's point being so if you talk to a non-autistic person about the weather so a neurotypical person about the weather they will be doing it just as you say like um a um a means to have a, com a conversation and communicate and socialize if you talk to an autistic person about the weather it's about the in-depth they'll be like telling you about the types of clouds and all this kind of thing and then it's interesting so when you have that sort of non-autistic conversation, yes. somebody and goes. The main point I was trying to make is that autistic people are actually conversational connoisseurs. We're not conversation avoiders because we view the conversation as a sacred act. Scottish, you can't just Scottish. prattle away meaninglessly without a point. The interest provides a rudder and an oar. <laughs> okay. Yes. And so, yeah, so when a non-autistic person says, oh, it's, uh, it's quite chilly, isn't it? And, and that just turns an autistic person off. It's like like those conversations, just arbitrary observations that yeah, mean nothing. All it does is serve to prop the conversation up. I would rather teabag a mug of sulfuric acid than <laughs> to spend a remaining minute in such defiling company. Oh, grim. Whereas an, if an autistic person said to me, quite chilly today and actually it's the coldest since it's been in blah 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 and that's probably because of this and this and, blah, blah, blah. and then that's actually interesting even if it's not your special interest or your specialization another autistic person's specialization interestingly will pick up another autistic person's interest right. like, so we say that often and i think there's something really useful and advantageous about having autism as a special interest because if i am listening to an autistic person monologuing about um something that i'm not particularly interested in i think to myself oh well at least i get to witness um an autistic person expressing themselves um you know beautifully and authentic authentically you know so that's it's a useful kind of um a way in as it were, at least I find that. I think, oh, I'm not particularly interested in um, 
anime or whatever you know i let that's a, that's a stereotype i don't meet a lot of stereotypes i'm not yeah i think i've angered molly there but i'm not you excuse know. me okay here we go i'm in trouble quick freddy say thing. don't fucking throw that shitly crocheted freddy when i could have done so much better for less than 80 quid oh now it's personal oh don't make me go there well I just need to remind everyone it's an audio so that we're, we're... Yeah, they can't see what we're talking about, but it's not really crocheted. Disappointment on my face. Don't listen to her, Freddy. (laughs) Freddy is fake. She's just angry that she's not... I bet he wasn't even used with cotton yarn. You know what? The teeth. Hello? The teeth. They're not even knitted. They're cutouts. The teeth do make me happy, though. They're realistic. They're cutouts. Just for the people listening, so Harry is holding up a crocheted Freddie Mercury. Freddie is being treated appallingly. I do I love his teeth. His teeth make me so happy, though. Excuse me, correct yourself. Fake Freddie is being treated poorly. I will be honest. I'm a bit upset that he isn't wearing his classic Adidas. Exactly. I could have done that, but... Oh, well. You know what? Anime's boring. For my alchemist brotherhood. So there we go. See, like these are stereotypes that get broken down. I don't particularly, um, you know, get off on anime. Oh, I God. do. <laughs> oh, theory me. A caution. Parental guidance. Edward Elric. Yeah. See, I, d- I don't know. You're just making noises at this point. Edward Elric. Alphonse Elric. He's meaningless. Arnold noise. Armstrong. These are make anime or are in anime or this is anime. People the that pure make pure sense of the form, the pure sense of the form. This is characters in anime that ah. are strong. They're pointy. Their pointy noses upset me a bit. They don't have pointy noses. Arnold Armstrong has a defined face and body. Gracious. And one little poof of blonde hair coming out the top. A poof. Okay. Well, you make it sound pretty attractive. Two poof. Three piff. No, no one poof. One poof, two piff, three piff, four. Piff, four piff. I'm a blue and black underweared little whore. <laughs> Harry, don't speak about yourself like that. And and just to be clear, that's actually that's actually a song Freddie wrote for me. I'm okay. a very very visual autistic person, so my memory's quite good. I'm very visual, and this is why Harry tends to try not to. Just have any potentially disturbing images okay i let me intervene i try so hard you do. i am very impulsive i'm visual too but i don't have the same disgust response to classically repulsive images in my head so i have to restrain myself that is how much of a good friend i am you know you remember my first webinar with you guys and my example no. of being able to draw whatever we want. Help! Run away! Quick, run! <laughs> I still, I still haven't drawn it, which I'm disappointed over. I will say that. Very oh. disappointed in myself. Um. By the way, everyone, we are doing a webinar. Oh yes, yes. We forgot about that. Okay. It's called. Yes. Um, it's called. Wait, wait, wait! It's called. Fuckbox. It's called Fuckbox now. Believe it or not, the entire point of this podcast was to talk about the webinar. 
Well, not necessarily, to be honest. Wait, it, it... it was to promote it, and we've yeah. just kind of... We've, we've... The beeps. The box. The box. The box. The box. <laughs> like that. Imagine you're having a night terror. You can't get up. You're stuck in bed. You turn to your left. Ding! The box. Ding! The box. Harry's sitting there in the corner with his piano. <laughs> <laughs> I would... That's an that is... Don't give me ideas. I'm gonna. I'm gonna have to try this. Out. Wait, with fake Freddy sitting on his shoulder as well. Tick the box. Tick the box. Tick the box. Fake. Hey. Fake. To, um, would it be all right oh. to backtrack a little bit about that sort of neurodiverse talking about uh, neurotypical talking about the weather? Having um, no nose is better than having a pointy anime nose. Or is that a no? <laughs> Yes, you can. Um, yeah. It's very difficult to try and reel in autistics when they're in the groove. That's fine. I'm not. I'm not going to try too hard. And this is partly a PDA space as well, as it happens. Yeah. And so the any kind of structure you may have had prior to the meeting has been, quite frankly, um, disembobulated. And this is the thing, because I'm not PDA or I don't have attention differences. I like structure. I love structure. Okay, let's give Chloe a bit of structure. Well, so yeah, I mean, I've got to be honest as well. I didn't have any structure. I, I just, <laughs> you know, that's that's kind of how I roll a little bit. Um, but oh, I, yeah. I've been larking around for no reason. I, just did, a... I did this as a kind of preemptive move. Okay, Harry, you should know by now. We've, we've done a few of these things together. When do I... I mean, I don't often have much structure from what I can yeah. remember. It must be the beard. It's throwing me you off. The beard, that's the opposite of structure. That's literally, I just can't be asked to shave. Oh, there we go. Okay, right. I can calm down now. 